Hello, and welcome to the Nature City Podcast, the show where we get to know our wild neighbors. In this episode, I sit down with Kyle Drake, Saskatchewan Director for Birds Canada, to talk about how to get hooked on nature and the science behind tracking birds. I'm Adrian, your host and fellow naturalist. This is episode two, Movement. Let's put on our shoes and see what's out there. Do you think you could say your name and your title? I'm Kyle Drake, or Dr. Kyle Drake, if you prefer. I'm the director in Saskatchewan for Birds Canada. Do you ever get to go out into the field? I do, and I figured we'd cover that. I am the Saskatchewan director, but I do get out in the field during the field season as much as I can because it's a big part of why I like doing what I do. Less so now as the director than, say, maybe I used to at younger ages. But yes, I very much still get out, and it is a big part of what I enjoy about the job. Yeah, and I think it's really important that you find those things and be able to work them into your work plan. I know for me, when I'm not doing a podcast, I'm doing stuff at the Food Bank's Garden Patch. Even though my job is mostly grant writing and management, I like to pick up a shovel sometimes and just get some stuff done. Yeah, there's something rewarding about seeing the fruits of your labor as they occur. Grant writing, there's a lot of labor, and then you might get fruit, and you might not, and you usually have to wait a long time. If you're moving a pile of dirt, by the end of the day, you kind of see what you've done. I totally appreciate that, too. <laughs> and it's a good break sometimes. No, it's good to stay grounded with physical work and especially stuff that has you toiling with the earth. I'm a gardener myself, so getting your hands in the dirt is a good idea. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Could you tell me a little bit about Birds Canada work in Saskatchewan? So we've been in the province since 2008, and what we've been focusing on most recently is bird-related education. And so this is teaching bird identification at the beginner, intermediate, and expert levels. And then another big part of our focus right now, we are leading a breeding bird atlas in the province. And so this is engaging the citizenry of Saskatchewan, the folks that already have those naturalist skills to participate in a citizen science project with the aims to redraw the species distribution maps of breeding birds within the province. There's never been a breeding bird atlas completed in Saskatchewan, so this will be the first one. And they are pretty major undertakings, but they have pretty significant conservation implications in terms of how the information gets used by a variety of people, being the government and regulatory agencies and large businesses who need to do environmental impact assessment and normal citizens that are just interested in birds and want to know something about the birds around them. So that's the idea with the Atlas is to produce a final product that will serve all those purposes while updating contemporary distribution maps for the province. Have there been any surprises during the Breeding Bird Atlas, things that you weren't expecting to be breeding here? Uh, A couple years ago, when a colleague and mine were up by Wollaston Lake, we had long-eared owls way up there calling away. They're known to be the southern boreal forest, and that would extend the breeding range of that species by a few hundred kilometers for sure. Sage Thrasher, that was the one that popped up this summer. I think that's only the second record ever in the province and it was breeding in the province those would be a couple of notable ones personally i went on a river trip 
the South Saskatchewan River from Empress into a place called Miri Bay along the river. So it's about 180 kilometers worth of river. And it's the first time I had heard a chat in Saskatchewan. I knew that they are in the province. They're in riparian areas in that southwest part of the province. But the number of chats that a colleague of mine and I detected on that single paddle trip was more than all of the records during the previous three years of the Atlas. So if you start digging into the data, there are a lot of those examples. (laughs) Definitely. Do you have an estimated end date for the Atlas or is it an ongoing project? Yeah, glad you asked that. Right now, the Atlas was scheduled to be from 2017 through 2021. As you know, having this conversation, we're doing it over Zoom in part because we're amid a pandemic. (laughs) And obviously, the pandemic had a pretty big effect on our planning for this summer. We have a steering committee with people on it from organizations that are helping to deliver on the project. And it was recommended this fall that we add another field season. It's one that we're thinking about doing, but we were scheduled to end the Atlas after next summer. Very likely that we will add one more year to it. Interesting. So you also mentioned early on that Birds Canada does a lot of work around education, especially bird ID. What do you think it takes for someone to get excited about nature? I think it kind of boils down to first and foremost, just a like for being outside and You can develop that like in a variety of ways. You know what I mean? You might like the fresh air. You might like the space, whatever it is. And then I think that being curious and liking to explore and discover, if you have those attributes about your personality, nature is a pretty cool place because it provides a lot of reward. And then that reward leads you to anticipate the excitement about the next time you're going to go out and interact in nature. And that ties quite well into my next question, which is what got you interested in doing the work that you do? For me, it's a like for outside, freedom of space, also a recognition for the need for conservation and exploring and interacting with nature. Those were really the things that drew me to it with no specific plan in mind. (laughs) So then going from wanting to work outside to studying birds with a PhD, Could you tell me a little bit about that next step in the transition? Yeah, I would have to be honest with anyone and say that it wasn't academics that got me to go to university. It was actually athletics. And it wasn't until I was a couple years into my undergrad and trying to figure out what it was I wanted to do to declare as a major. And I was on a backpacking trip up in the mountains and I said, well, I want to do this. (laughs) And so I started looking into ways that you might find work that would allow you to be outside. And I was living in California. That's where I grew up. And my mom pointed me towards Humboldt State University because she knew that they had a good environmental sciences school and forestry and other things. I went into the forestry department and wasn't too into growing trees. I know it's not to denigrate that as a profession. I totally recognize that and it's needed. I was kind of more into discovering the animals and the biodiversity that was there. And they had a wildlife department at Humboldt State. And that's literally how I fell into wildlife and birds and had no affinity for birds in particular before taking an ornithology class that you had to take as part of your core requirements to get a degree in wildlife from Humboldt State. So I'm not one of these lifelong birders that 
knew what they wanted to do from a young age. I found out about birds in my early 20s. So the fact that you could identify birds by sound, that general interest in improving my personal perception that would benefit when I just go out to the woods personally. Some of those interests just overlap strongly with what I could do professionally. And somehow I lucked out in figuring out how to do it as a job. <laughs> you know, I'm not lucking out. Lots of hard work, but certainly good fortune too. Yeah, I know for sure for my career, uh, it is a mix of both where I've had opportunities to discover by chance things that I love and things that I want to do. And so I totally understand that I was not going to be a professional gardener uh, by any means. And so suddenly to follow a winding path there makes a lot of sense to me. So I can definitely relate to that. Yeah, no, it's uh, that's the wonderful thing about discovering your interests, you know, and the best thing to do is to never quit discovering that's what I think. <laughs> Definitely. So how do scientists track bird movement and migration? Yeah, so I thought about this one. I thought, man, you could put together an entire podcast on just this alone. <laughs> so I would say that originally how scientists track bird migration or movement, and those two things are different. And scientist perspective. Migration is the seasonal movement of birds over very large spatial scales. Some of them, as you're probably aware, are Arctic breeding species that winter all the way down in South America and all distances between in terms of migration. And then bird movement is usually focused on a particular season where a bird might move and describing what it habitats are and what resources it might be using, say, during the breeding season. So just to clarify that for bird scientists, movement and migration are actually two separate things, but they do all involve going somewhere. <laughs> and so originally to learn about bird migration and movements, even on a smaller scale, it all started with bird banding. And so this is capturing birds and affixing to their leg a small metal band that would be engraved with a unique number. And then by marking birds in one location, and then eventually having that individual either recaptured or recovered, what we call when someone might find a dead bird. So many, many years and large sample sizes have allowed us to learn about several things. So that's describing how we learned originally about bird movement. Of course, with technology, this has evolved to using transmitter technology. So things like a VHF transmitter or a satellite transmitter. And we can affix these types of markers to birds. And when we do, then that technology will record specific location information at specified temporal intervals. And this will reveal where an animal lives or how long they spend in a place. Those are the dominant ways that we've learned about bird migration and movement. There's still a lot of banding that goes on. And there's also studies using transmitters that continue. And they're going to have different questions if they're involving bands as opposed to a transmitter that are usually related to scale or behavioral things that you're trying to answer. So then is that like where you would use bands or for migration and one that's continually sending data points for movement? Yeah. So interestingly enough, we can use the modern transmitters for all types of information. 
It's just that depending on the transmitter technology, it'll have some limitations on how often it can record data and then for how long it can record data. And then it's going to be some limitations on battery life. Eventually, they'll all die, even if the bird lives long after. And so this is why the marker type that you're going to put on a bird is going to really depend on the question that you're trying to answer. And so as an example, there's still a lot of migration monitoring going on, and that involves the putting of metal leg bands on passerine birds. And with that, they do usually take some tissue samples that can tell you other things about birds using isotopes, like where they might have wintered or where their breeding origin was. Many, many ducks and geese are marked each year with metal leg bands. And this is basically to monitor a variety of population parameters because these species are hunted. And so banding of a lot of the game species is related to trying to get information that allows us to facilitate that regulatory process. Wonderful. If someone were to see a banded bird, how would they report it? Yeah, that's a good question. Anytime you see a marker on a bird like that, if you can accurately get the code that is on the marker and then also the color of the marker and what the marker type was, you can phone that information in if you were to go on the website and just say how to report a bird band. It would direct you to the bird banding office, and then it would give you the opportunity to either phone that information in or to send it in via email with as much information as you can, like what was the location, what was the date, what was the species you were looking at, and then what was the characteristics of the marker. If you send all of those things in, you will get something back telling you about, well, this bird was marked in this location as a, how old it was, or it was an adult, or it was a juvenile. It's a little bit of feedback to the person reporting that information. So that's what you would want to do with it. And then that information ultimately gets relayed back to the researcher or the scientists and the managers who are doing the marking of those birds. And so it's one of the oldest forms of citizen science before the term citizen science was ever adopted. People have been recording bands. It's pretty cool <laughs> when you think about it. Yeah, I love that there's a bird banding office. So they just know tracked bird banding studies and are able to link to a database or something like that? Yeah. So as an example, I am a bird bander. I've been banding Arctic nesting geese for over 20 years. So I have a master banding permit and people that work with a master bander will work in person or they will have enough experience to be sub-permitted, which would allow them to work independently. But yes, the bird banding office keeps track of all of those permits. Each year at the end of the year, they send a note to us saying, submit all your data for your banded birds and your ability to get a permit the following year is contingent on you submitting data. So, you know, they're on top of the process. You can't get a banding permit, catch a bunch of birds, mark them, and then not relay that information somewhere. You just wouldn't be allowed to have a permit. So, yeah, it's definitely a privilege to be able to do that kind of work, and it's certainly highly regulated, as it should be. There's a lot of responsibility in handling wild animals. Yeah, I imagine there's lower stress things and proper capture and safe capture and all those different pieces, and then also safe release, I imagine. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, all of those things matter. Yeah. So now that we've talked a little bit about the different ways that people can track the movement and the migration of birds, is there something in your own research that you've discovered from banding birds? 
Well, yes. <laughs> and it relates to one of your questions, actually. You sent me a question asking about some people talk about the same birds coming back to their nest. Do we know if these are the same birds? That was actually one of the focal questions of my PhD working on Ross's geese in the Queenmont Gulf region of the Central Arctic. And the idea was to find out if a bird experiences hatching its egg and having its young leave the nest, are they more likely to come back closer to the same place they nested as a bird that failed in nesting attempt? Hmm. And I won't get into all of the details of that research other than to say the birds that failed dispersed a statistically significant farther distance, but it's hard to come up with, well, is there a benefit or an advantage to that? Because all birds dispersed some average distance that was about a kilometer. But we did answer the question in terms of do Ross's geese come back to the same place? And the answer to that is sometimes they do. Sometimes a bird will use an exact same nest as it did the year before. But it does happen in some other species as well. It tends to be more prevalent in longer-lived species. Hmm. So if a species you know, has an average lifespan of 7 to 10 years as an adult bird, it has a much higher probability of returning to the same breeding ground year after year as a species that's only going to live 2 or 3 years. It could be perhaps because when long-lived species, you have a lot more opportunities to see that occurrence over and over again. And generally speaking, yeah, you're going to get the same species in your yard. They may not be the same individuals, but you're probably going to get the same species unless you really do something different to your yard. Just to make sure that I understand this correctly, it sounds to me that after migration, when birds arrive back, at least in your experience with geese, is that they are reestablishing territories that might be somewhat close by, but are not the same patches of ground. Is that a fair interpretation? Yes. In geese, that is exactly as you described. But this is also the same for all of the birds that we hear singing in the spring, in the summertime. Well, on average, they're probably not coming back to the exact same territory. The function of singing is to announce to everyone that, hey, I'm on a territory. I'm open for a business called reproduction, and I'd like for you to come and check out my place. <laughs> Interesting. So the species is reestablishing, but really you wouldn't be able to tell if it's the same individual without banding or GPS or some other method, because I know I for sure cannot tell two chickadees apart. Yep, you're 100% right with that. So if we're banding the small passer and birds like chickadees, and if we were hoping to collect further information on them by reseeing them, then what we'll usually do is, in addition to putting the metal leg band on the bird, we'll also put a sequence of plastic leg bands on the bird. And so if you're doing a study where you wanted to see if the same bird is coming back or if it's the same bird hanging out in the yard, that's what you would need is a bird that's marked with something that allows you to see the unique identifier. In the case of passer and songbirds, it's often these colored leg bands that will be put on each bird in a unique combination. And so the person looking at the bird would be like the upper left leg had an orange band, the lower left leg had a red band, the upper left leg had a white band, and the lower left leg had a white band, and that would correspond to a certain individual. But people are doing that kind of marking. They're usually looking at studies that are pretty small in spatial scale. They're usually looking at trying to watch birds on a winter or a breeding territory and to gather reciting information of that individual over time. 
So I have some experience with that during my master's degree. I worked on piping and snowy plovers down in South Texas, and these are shorebirds. And we were interested in measuring home range size, which required putting a VHF transmitter on them. But we also put a unique colored leg band combination on the bird, in part because the VHF battery lasted, I think it was 56 days, so just under two months. Mm. And the winter period for those species is about a nine-month period from end of August to the beginning of May. Because we still wanted to follow the birds a little bit longer if we could, after the battery had died, we put the unique color band combinations on those birds. And in doing that, that allowed us to not only continue to follow them for the rest of that season after they had had their transmitter die, but it also allowed us to return to South Padre Island the following year and look for those individuals based on just those color band combinations. In the following year, we took a GPS location anytime we detected a bird, and what we found was that 80% of the individual locations in year two were found within their previous year's home range, meaning that the birds went back to the exact same places on the beach or on the bay shore and spent the following year in the exact same habitat. And so in those cases, it provides pretty strong evidence that habitat, that spot were to be lost for whatever reason, then there's probably going to be a bird that is out of home. So that kind of information can be pretty useful for conservation when we're talking about trying to allow for development to occur, but also do it in a way that allows for space for other critters to live. That's the challenge that we have as conservationists. And I imagine something like that, where they return to the same spot, must be really nice for conservation because you're not saying, okay, we need to protect this beach and every beach within four kilometers because they could land on any beach. Yeah, well, it's nice if you only want to look at one species, but then when you start looking at a couple more species, you realize that we're going to need maybe a few other spots too, right? So. (laughs) Yeah, and of course, no species really lives in a vacuum anyway. So if you built two giant hotels on either side of that nest, that's probably not the same as conserving the space. Yeah, yeah. No, and this is the thing. Oftentimes, I'm talking about doing a winter study on a species at risk. And I mean, the fact that there are species at risk is one of the reasons we were studying them. So that's to say that the ones that are maybe not doing so well are often really the focus of our attention. But sometimes if we just maybe took the focus off of those individual species that aren't doing so well, and maybe put the focus back on the ecosystem, the individual species might come along a little bit better, I guess would be my point. (laughs) Thank you. I think that really answers my questions around that very clearly. What are the common questions that you get asked by people when you're doing things like education or you talk to folks about your work? And could you answer them for me? Yeah, well, when I thought about what kind of questions do I get, I usually get two types. One that kind of relates to, well, what do you do when working? What do you do as a scientist basically looking for me to describe an average day's work or the tasks and the activities? (laughs) And so when I get asked that one, I tell people, well, it's not that exciting. I spend a lot of time behind the computer thinking. (laughs) (laughs) But in all seriousness, I think there's this cool part about my job, which is when I get to go outside and do things that other people only do in their leisure time, but that's a small part of the job. As it relates to birds, (laughs) 
I usually get questions or more along the line. Oh, you know something about birds, hey? Well, I saw something that looked like this. What was that? <laughs> and those are cool questions to have because sometimes I can answer it based on what they tell me. But more important is that they're showing an interest in discovering what something is. And it gives me an opportunity to say, hey, well, this is likely what it is. And there's also this opportunity for you to learn these things yourself if you come out to one of our bird identification workshops or check out our online materials. It just becomes an opportunity to share a common interest and then grow from there. Yeah. I get the what did I see because I spend quite a lot of time walking in the Miwasan Valley and exploring nature nearby and I'm always getting the what are you looking at or I saw a little brown bird today what was it? Exactly. And oftentimes when it's those guys you know, don't have something striking in terms of color or bill it's kind of like oh, you saw a sparrow. <laughs> so, but you know even if you can't answer the question the cool thing is is that Someone has taken notice and they're taking a second to recognize that interest. And I always just view it as a crack in the door open for you to have a conversation. Definitely. And I love to see the curiosity that people have with the world around them. And I do think it's an opportunity to open their world a little bit, like you said. I think letting people have their own curiosities, but if you can help them along their journey and learning about what that curiosity is, that's the thing that will garner the traction to get them more involved in getting outside and being more interested. To, to appreciate, understand, conserve is our motto. And appreciating and understanding, those two are linked. It's hard to appreciate something when your understanding's not very good, right? Mm-hmm. And this is where we get into that education being a big part of our mission, because we know that it's important if you're going to influence people's opinions or people's actions, it all starts with them caring. Adding to that, how can we support Birds Canada's work? Well, aside from the obvious plug to donate to conservation organizations who do work, Birds Canada and Ducks Unlimited Canada and Nature Conservancy of Canada, those types of organizations. If you have naturalist skills, then they could participate in citizen science programming and help with the monitoring of birds and conservation outcomes. Programs like the Breeding Bird Atlas, Nocturnal Owl Survey, Christmas Bird Count. There's a bunch of different programs that happen at different times of year. So that'd be a way. Make use of our education opportunities and increase your enjoyment of being outside. And let us help you with that. That would be helping us support our work because when people come to our workshops, it shows that there's a desire for that and a need or a want for it in the community. So just attending and building on your interests is one of the ways to support work. And I always like to tell people you can always support direct conservation at the scale you influence. So you know, my work is bird conservation. It's trying to make sure that species don't go extinct and that other critters have a bit of space to share with us, you know, to live. And so many of us have yards and we have the influence over what grows in those yards. And so if you want to plant things like some native plants and flowers that are good for beneficial pollinators, those are real small things that everyone can do. And here in our province, because we have a lot of people that influence very large acres of land through agriculture, I like to tell people that if you can keep some native cover on your land or natural cover on your land, you know, allowing some nesting spots for critters, you know, not having all 160 acres of your quarter under cultivation, not draining your wetland, keeping those things because they are key to the biodiversity of the region. 
I guess those are some of the things that I would tell people, how do you support conservation work? Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Happy to help and look forward to hearing how, how your project turns out, Adrian. Yes, I'm excited. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. One of the questions I wanted to learn from my conversation with Kyle Drake was whether individual birds return to the same spot every year. In the past, I've not given a lot of thought of whether we see the same animals every day. It turns out that some of the birds around us are more like neighbors than others. Some birds come back every year, others do not. Some we see every day, others not. Which got me wondering, how can we tell the difference? It turns out, scientists can use tools like bird banding and transmitters to follow individuals and tell them apart. However, before you get excited and try bird banding all the birds in your yard, please remember that this is something that needs to be left to permitted bird banders. Thinking about this conversation, another thing that stood out was how important it is to think about ecosystems if we are going to support and protect endangered species. We can't protect a spot on a beach and hope that we'll save an entire species. Saskatoon has so many opportunities to protect habitat, including endangered grasslands, and if we set aside these spaces, everyone will benefit from the nature they attract. Rare animals will have homes, and we'll have opportunities to discover nature and keep asking questions. In our next episode, we'll learn about a specific wild neighbor who's received a lot of attention recently. Stay tuned.